electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, John, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The state of your money after another volatile week for stocks. Was the retest and rebound a sign that the bottom is now truly in? We'll discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Brenda Vangelo, Jim Labenthal, Joe Terranova, Pete Nigerian. He, of course, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's check the markets. Bit of a different picture at noon in the East than it was to start the day. You've got, well, there's Meta. It's on the board today, and it's green. I don't know why it's there, but it's green. The S&P is negative. I think we're supposed to show the Dow there. We'll try and get that up, too. The Nasdaq is positive. There's the Dow on the right. It's down by 126. Ten-year note yield is at 187. Guys, it's good to see you. I missed everybody. Farmer Jim, I'm going to begin with you because it is one of the central questions in what we call our state of play. Was that the retest that we were looking for, that we needed? And now can we definitively say that the bottom is in? despite the fact of the escalation we saw over the weekend, and who knows what comes next. Scott, I'm, I'm going to answer your question directly. Yes. And I know there are people out there who say, what a fool, he's calling a bottom. But here's the thing. With all the factors that are facing the markets right now, they're known by the markets, okay? And so people who are tweeting at me, hey, you're a moron, you're an idiot, don't you see what's going on in Ukraine? Yeah, I see what's going on in Ukraine. So does everybody else in the markets. And over the next two to two, three weeks, you're likely to see resolution, not only on Russia versus Ukraine, but get a a little resolution on what the Fed's path of interest rate hikes is. And the market likes certainty. You know, just going back to Ukraine, the market didn't like it when those tanks were on the border. They didn't know which way they were going to move. Now we know and the market likes it. So you've got to be investing here. I'm sorry. And, you know, I said this while you were on, on uh, break last week. Hope you're feeling better, Judge, by the way. You really do. But while, I was, while you were on break, I said, uh, you know, the market is going to look past Ukraine. And people said, no, he's an idiot. Hey, you know what? That's that's the way this works. You're supposed to be buying now. Last week was positive. And it's not just that the next week is going to be positive. It's likely the rest of this year is going to be positive. You're going to look back on this and say this was a buying opportunity. So you can rattle around right. here for the next couple of weeks. But if you're not buying, I think that's right. a mistake. I don't think you agree with Farmer Jim. Joe, do you? Because the note you gave to our producer today uh, suggests that you think we're going to be in a malaise and the market's going to do next to nothing for the next few weeks. You want to take issue with his call that the bottom's in and we got to buy stocks? No, I love Jim's confidence. I think that's great. Um, the only reason that I'm selling is from a risk management perspective in uh, getting stopped out on the close on certain positions. Um, I think Jimmy is suggesting that there's a bottom in the market. What I think is that when the market gets down to that 4,000, 4,100 level, 
That's where institutional buyers who are sitting on the sidelines right now realizing not that we are going to have a malaise, that we are in a malaise right now for the market. That's where those institutional buyers seem to be returning once again. So I do think the market is going to kind of spin in a lot of different places and basically sit in the same place until we find some form of a catalyst, Scott. Um, and the market is clearly missing a, sca- a catalyst as it relates to the inflationary pressures, the conflict in Ukraine, and what monetary policy is going to be doing to respond to that. So, so what do you make, though, of the retest and the rebound? I- I'll ask you the question again, and I'll do it more directly this time, I suppose. I have to. Did we bottom mm-hmm. or Sure. Not? I-, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I I think you could retest again if there is an intensification with, you know, what appears to be a crazy man in in, in Russia um, with this conflict. You could retest again. Would I be a buyer down there? Yes, I would. Okay, so, Shan, what do you make of those comments from from both gentlemen uh, in the committee? Farmer Jim obviously looking to be a little more aggressive at the moment than, than Joe is, and, and that's, that's fine. Uh, one is entitled to their opinion and their own investing strategy at the current time. Is Joe's right. Not exactly sure what's going to happen next. But what do you think? How significant were those moves in the market last week? Not only the retest, but that rebound in the manner in which it occurred on Thursday and then Friday. The rebound was historically accurate. I mean, historically predictive that we would have seen a rebound after the military action was taken. I know many of us have been sharing around these different charts that show this is what happens in the 12 months after, you know, a military conflict or an event, if you will, from a geopolitical perspective. I want to key on something that um, Joe just said, however, because I think it's an important point and maybe what differentiates my view from Jim's is that I do think that over the course of the next two weeks or so, we are going to see, um, you know, this continued rattle around. And I don't think that the institutional buyers come in kind of pre-fed. I I understand that we're looking at 25 basis points. We all feel really confident about that. Uh, But we've seen a sell-off, you know, with the pressers over the course of the last several meetings. There have been a few missteps in the comments coming out of Powell. Um, I I just feel like there's an opportunity to retest this low again in the next couple of weeks. And I don't think it behooves institutional buyers to come back in. Now, ahead of the end of the quarter, absolutely. Do you want to be sitting on cash in a 7% CPI inflationary environment coming into the end of this quarter when you have, to Jim's point, which is a good one, a lot of runway ahead of you for the second half of the year? Absolutely not. But getting in in the course of the next week or so with, you know, potential for a move into other NATO countries by Putin, we're really not sure what he's going to do in terms of what he's going to do on the ground. And so for me, I'm waiting it out over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to let this rattle around a little bit. Um, And then, you know, along with other institutional buyers, I think we get a lot more confident in the second half of March. All right, Pete, settle it. Um, Wait around over the next couple of weeks and and see how things shake out. Or be aggressive like Jim Labenthal is suggesting that it's time to start getting. Not, not saying he's saying all in, but he's ready to put money to work. In fact, he is already, and I'm going to reveal a new position that he's taken in just a few moments. I'm going to keep you on the hook uh, for that for a moment. But, but how about it? Yeah, tactically, I would say this, uh, Scott. And it's great to see you back, man. It really is. I, I got to tell you, um, this is an unbelievable trading environment. Is it a 
a stock trading environment or investing environment, I, I think that's really difficult. It's hard to call the bottom. I mean, the velocity of the moves that we have had, Scott, just go back. And you, you said Thursday, Friday. Forget Thursday. The last two hours of Thursday and Friday was a 1,500-point move in the Dow. So, I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you these are crazy times. It tells you that we have incredible velocity within the market. We see volatility spiking up to 38. It can't hold at all. And then before you know it, it's back underneath 30. So with all those indicators that are out there right now, it's telling me great trading environment. I looked and looked and looked. I could not find stocks that I wanted to necessarily buy. Now, I will say this as well. When I say trading environment, how about this? On Friday, we had Cleveland Cliffs. I know that's a huge name that Jimmy has loved and talked about for a long time. He's been right. I didn't choose to buy the stock when I had options that were getting bought in there, Scott. They bought 10,000 of the May 23 calls for a little over a dollar. Now, that stock has moved up today. It's up about 10%. Jimmy's pretty happy. Those calls went from a dollar to almost 250. So that's, what is that? 100%. Not so bad. So that's why I say this is a trading environment. And I think you've got to look at it that way because we don't know from day to day what, what direction these markets are going. We started off today with the Dow down 500 points, and now we're off just a little over 100 points. We had the NASDAQ in negative territory by 100. It's taken off to the upside. These are all very great things if you're trading the markets. Not so great for investing because we know how fast they can flip that final hour of the day, the last two hours of the day. That's when the trading really begins, and we start to see the huge volumes start to come into trading as well. So I think it's a very difficult time to be saying, you know what, I think this is the bottom. I still look to Mike Wilson and say, you know what, He's becoming more right all the time for Morgan Stanley. And a lot of people that were very critical of him are now starting to see that he's actually been pretty daggone accurate. Okay, since since you brought up Mike Wilson, I'm going to go there now. And Brenda, I want your reaction to what Mike Wilson is saying today, which is essentially a double down of or I don't know at this point, it's like a quadruple down of the point he's been making for as long as I can (laughs) remember at this point, talking about what he says are knowns and unknowns. He calls last week's uh, tactical rally in equities, uh, saying it will likely run out of momentum in March as the Fed begins to tighten in earnest and the earnings picture deteriorates. He says valuation remains extended. Evidence is now building that earnings forecasts are increasingly at at risk. Now, talking about the momentum that we're starting to see in negative earnings revisions, and he's not the only one who's suggesting this either, by the way. Liz Ann Saunders of Charles Schwab was on the network within the last couple of hours suggesting the same thing, that it's something to keep an eye on, that that is going in the wrong direction, these negative earnings revisions. And for all of those who suggest that at the end of the day, the strength in corporate earnings and the strength in growth is going to be able to offset whatever the Fed does and whatever other variables you throw at the market, you're going to hang your hat on the fact that earnings are going to remain strong. Well, maybe not so much. What do you think? Well, I think earnings growth is really the key uh, to uh, the market recovering and the market delivering a positive return this year. So I think that's an important thing to keep an eye on. But I think if we look at the reasons why we have seen some negative revisions, it's still because we're in this period of uncertainty in terms of the Omicron uh, impact. Uh, Supply chains are still a disaster. So a lot of these things are contributing uh, to uncertainty for companies when they're giving guidance, uh, forward guidance. So I think to the extent that as the year goes on and we do get more clarity there, if supply chains uh, begin uh, to unwind a little bit um, and if consumers shift their spending patterns as we think they will towards more travel, leisure, services-related spending, that should help alleviate things. Um, So 
we think that over the longer term, and I'll just echo some of the previous comments, but as Shannon mentioned, you know, looking out 12 months uh, from typical uh, geopolitical events, usually the market is higher. Um, and so we still think we're in a strong environment. Um, I'm not saying what I think the bottom has been made in the market. I still think there's uncertainty here. But for longer term investors, I think maintaining diversification is really important. It's been a good lesson this year, especially if we've seen these wild swings uh, between market leadership, particularly in the last couple of weeks. So I think staying diversified and staying the course is really important. Okay, so Pharma Jim, I bring it back to you uh, because as I teased heading into the show, you have a new position in a stock that you have recently put on and you can give us more details. And I wonder if it falls into the category of what Jim Cramer was talking about earlier uh, this morning, where he suggested that there are a lot of stocks with no exposure to what's happening over in Ukraine and Russia that are down uh, seemingly as much as the stocks that do have some kind of exposure. And he made the point this morning that they bought more Wells Fargo last week. And I think he was making the point that that stock was an example of that, not because it falls into the same genre of your move, but that's where I'm, I'm sort of leading you anyway, is the fact that I see you've initiated a new position in J.P. Morgan. This one seems so easy, Scott. And I guess I have to qualify right out of the gate that all the banks are going to have some exposure to Russia. It could be assets on the balance sheet. It could be business that they do in Russia. There's going to be some exposure. But the way these stocks have gone on sales, the financials in particular, just mandates that I, that I migrate there and start adding not only to a new name like J.P. Morgan, but also adding to Berkshire Hathaway, which is more than a financial stock. Here's the underlying premise, and I'm going to use Berkshire Hathaway. The economy is humming. If you looked at, at Warren Buffett's annual letter uh, on Saturday, he made it clear things are going great. Things are chugging along. Pun on Burlington Northern there. Uh, however, you know, these stocks have gone on sale, J.P. Morgan in particular. When we get through Russia, Ukraine, when we get the first rate hike done, I think that what we're going to see is the market focuses on economic activity that's very strong. You see it in durable goods orders. You see it in factories being built all across the nation. This all requires financing. That's where J.P. Morgan steps in. Uh, their loan volume should be going up. And yes, I see the yield curve has flattened. I think that's temporary in response to what's going on overseas. And I think when that is resolved, you will see economic activity shining through. By the way, side note here, but related. Look at TSA traveler counts. In the, in the first two months of the year, you've had six counts, six days in which they've been above 2019 levels. That means the economy is coming back and you need to finance growth in the economy. J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway are the way to do it. OK, so that all sounds great. And I can't argue with you. The economy is doing great. But we do have one little problem and it's called the, the Fed, right? What is today may not necessarily be what it is tomorrow. The Fed knows that the economy is humming, too. Right, Jim? In fact, the Fed yes. thinks the thinks the economy is humming too much, which is why the Fed needs to slow down the economy, regardless of what you say is happening today. The tomorrow is a raise in interest rates and then another and then another and another and another. And who knows how many after I that? I love so what the way you tee this up. Economic picture you paint today. I I love the way you tee it up, Scott. Judge, you're getting me ready for golf season, and I appreciate it, okay? Whether it's J.P. Morgan or the S&P 500, stocks have come down. And they've come down in response over the last two months 
not just to Russia over the last couple of weeks, but to the Fed and to exactly what you say. So if JP Morgan is off 15%, or better yet, look at the S&P 500 forward multiple. It was 23 at the beginning of the year, now it's 18.8. The market, whether it's the market as a whole or the market for stocks, which is where I exist, and JP Morgan is an example, have adjusted to that. And they've over-adjusted and given me the opportunity to get in. Okay, now the other question that plays off what I just said is, what, if anything, does what's happening in Russia and Ukraine impact the Fed? And it's a serious question, right? Powell's going to be on the Hill this week. He's probably going to be asked about that very issue, whether it impacts how he's thinking about the future path of interest rate hikes. Let's bring in Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter, into that conversation right now. Steve, it's good to see you. And there was a bespoke tweet, and I think it was yesterday, that I flagged for myself and, and sent to, to me, so I, I wanted to bring it up today. They suggest in the month of February, the odds of a 50 basis point hike in March have gone from under 10 percent to 100 percent and back to less than 10 percent. Is that a real world look at where the Fed truly is as a result of what's taking place overseas today? Yeah, that's the uh, Steve Leisman full employment uh, contract is what that is. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably accurate. I think the 100 percent was overstated to begin with. I don't think the Fed was ever that certain. And I, and I don't think the Fed is in the mode right now of, of going to do 50 percent given what's happened with geopolitical uncertainty. But, Scott, if I could just take a step back, you guys were having a great conversation about the trade. I, I think maybe one thing was left out, which is a lot of what may be going on right now. I'm going to call it the Zoltan relief rally. I don't know if you were among those people over the weekend that read um, a piece by this guy, Polzar Zoltan, that was making the rounds all over the place that said this was going to be a Lehman weekend because of the sanctions that were going to be put on. Um, I, I spent the weekend on the phone with uh, former Federal Reserve officials, uh, senior uh, bankers from, from all parts of, of the banking system, um, and they told me roundly this was not going to be a Lehman weekend, and I published on that uh, on Twitter. But... Um, right now, you do not see the kind of blowouts and spreads that were talked about. You have not heard the Federal Reserve uh, have to make a, an announcement that it's coming in to provide dollar liquidity. This was a major and historic set of sanctions against Russia here. It was the first time they've sanctioned the central bank of a G20 country that has $630 billion of reserves. And yes, markets are down, but you do not have any kind of crisis trading. You guys had a very normal stock market discussion on a day of historic financial sanctions. And I think, you know, who knows? You can never say never. But right now, I think it's important to note that trade, though down, is proceeding well and not in a crisis mm. or systemic mode here. OK, so let's connect the dots then. If, if you suggest, rightly so, obviously, that What's taking place is not causing a tremendous amount of stress in global markets. Then that says to me that Fed Chair Powell is not going to adjust his policy as a result of something that's not taking place and that he has to stay the course as much for his credibility's sake as anything else. I think that's right. Um, and I think what you can layer into this from the Russia situation is the likelihood, Scott, that you're going to have higher inflation coming from higher oil prices. Although I do see you should look at those rig counts. Honestly, if I had to say one factor that's the most important for how many rate hikes the Fed is going to do, I would say watch the rig counts. They are going up there. And, and uh, I had a good talk with my friend John Kildoff. Uh, you ought to have him on and talk about it. He thinks 
There could be a boatload of oil coming down the pike. That could be anti-inflationary in the second half. But let me tell you this. I'm basically unchanged in my outlook for the Fed here. Um, I didn't think they were going to do 50. They're going to do a quarter. They're going to do it steady. They're going to remain nimble. They might ramp it up in the second half if inflation does not behave. Um, I, I think that the political uncertainty, uh, geopolitical uncertainty, uh, kind of weighs in favor of going slower. But the inflation numbers weigh certainly in favor of going. Because, and, and stay with me, Steve, but, but Shannon, you know, it's like Farmer Jim suggesting earlier that, at least in, in his mind, that this is going to be resolved, speaking of Russia-Ukraine, in a matter of a couple of weeks, that we'll have a lot more clarity on that. And, you know, by that time, Shan, that Jay Powell's going to be able to make up his mind based on the current state of inflation, not what's happening geopolitically. And as Steve says, the prospects of even more inflation because of what's taking place makes Jay Powell's um, stance all the more resolute. What do you think, Shan? Well, that's why I expressed my concerns about those comments coming out of the meeting. You know, I think in this interim period, the Fed's going to have a little bit of cover because they can say, well, we've seen this energy price tick up, and that's really obviously centered around the Russia-Ukraine scenario. We're also not seeing, you know, probably the, the move in oil that I think many of us would expect. I mean, we're certainly seeing it in natural gas futures in Europe, um, which certainly could be expected. But I think right. the challenge here is that we are looking at a PMI in the second half of the year that continues to accelerate, to Jim's point. Um, PMIs last week were really strong. Nobody cared, right, because we were all focused on Russia, Ukraine. Uh, so I do think that they're going to take the cover, um, to Steve's point in this meeting. I was never thinking it was going to be 50 either. Uh, so if we take the cover, we're going to take the cover for the next two months. And then the Fed actually may not be in the worst position in the second half of the year. It might actually be the ECB and the BO because they're not going to be able to hike rates right now at the same pace that they need to. Um, and they're going to be the ones who are playing catch up in the second half of the year. I actually think the Fed's going to be able to be methodical, be prescriptive and be data dependent. And if we get some improvement in July and August, I think it's going to give them some cover while the ECB and the BOE are forced to hike. Hey, Steve, last comment before I let you bounce, because I got some other stuff I got to get to. I mentioned uh, rather in passing that Powell's on the Hill this week. And it is what I think the only real public appearances that he is going to make before what is arguably the most consequential Fed meeting that we've seen in some time. Right. How is he likely to use these appearances this week to lay the groundwork for what's going to happen some 10 days from when we see him? Yeah, uh, good point. By the way, welcome back, Scott. We missed you uh, dearly while you were gone. I'm glad to see you're healthy again. Um, look, uh, okay. uh, the, the, uh, the Fed chair is going to, I think, put the marker down. He's let his committee go back and forth. And, and really, it's those committee comments that led to those gyrations in the contract that you started uh, this discussion with. Um, I think he's going to lay it down. I think he's going to use the language that's been out there, talk about steady, use the word nimble, um, and say, look, and if we don't get the response that we were after in the second half of the year, we'll do something more rapid. And something more rapid has been code for doing 50, but they haven't used that. At least the people in the center of the committee, they haven't used it on the front end. Bullard wants that. Bullard was part of the reason why you, th those, those, those probabilities for a 50 jacked up. But he didn't get much help there. And that's kind of the way the Fed works. You go out there, you throw something out. It was The ball was not picked up. Um, and, and so that's where we are. It's possible, yet you're going to get a bad March uh, inflation report. I don't think they're going to go 50 in the face of the geopolitical uncertainty. And I think Powell will make that clear. 
Pete, uh, I want to come to Pete in a second. Steve, thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be back with you, too. Thanks for those uh, nice words, too. Yeah. That's Steve Leisman, our senior economics reporter, uh, joining us, a, a, as always. Uh, so, Pete, I did want to maybe end this first big segment that, that we do by talking about the growth trade. I, th- I thought Mike Santoli made an interesting point on one of the earlier uh, programs about the idea, if you look at the, the charts of the NASDAQ, that it, it certainly looks like it might be close to, in his words, sold out that most of the stocks that had to come down a lot have, in fact, come down by the quote-unquote necessary amount. I want to focus on ARC for a second because we, we so often say, Pete, well, look how much XYZ stock is, is off of its 52-week high. And I wonder if now's the time to turn the table a little bit and suggest, well, look how much XYZ stock is off of its bottom from February 24th. And if you take a look at some of the names like a Tesla, which is 24 percent higher than it was on February 24th intraday low or block, which is 58 percent above or Coinbase, which is 23 percent above or DraftKings 28 or Teladoc 34. I wonder if that's the story that now needs to be told that even those stocks potentially have bottomed Pete. Yeah, I don't know necessarily, and none of us do, uh, if they've necessarily bottomed yet, Scott, or not. I mean, they were pop- they were absolutely pressed to the downside at an enormous rate, right? I mean, they were really just dropping in chunks on the way down. And then all of a sudden, we've got this reversal that you were just uh, talking about. But that doesn't mean it's over. It doesn't mean that some of these names aren't still overpriced and that there might still be a little bit of pain left in that trade. What I liked, what we'd seen, Scott, last week was some ARC put buying. And the reason I liked what we saw was... I love Kathy Wood. I think she does a great job. She's transparent. She's been very, very open about this to you and everybody else about exactly how they're looking at things. And they're looking five years out where everybody else is looking five minutes out, so it seems. So, you know, we have to understand that side of it as well. That doesn't mean necessarily, though, that she has bought the bottom in all of these names where she has jumped in even recently. So when I see a put spread, that's a great opportunity. And what I mean by that, Scott, to make it as simplistic as possible If you buy a $5 put spread to the downside and you only pay $1 for that spread, that's your risk. That's how much I can lose. I put on that trade last week. I can lose a dollar. If this turns and burns to the downside again, and and we all know it's a headline away from something like that, if we see that again, those will start to expand. As a matter of fact, the day after I purchased those, the stock actually, or the the ETF, was already trading at at new 52-week lows. It could break again, Mm -hmm. and if it does, that could easily go to $5. So the risk-reward of a trade like that is exactly what I'm here for. I'm looking for those kind of risk-reward. I look for it on the upside. I also look for it on the downside. So it's a dollar cost to me so that I can make $5. I love those kind of trades, and I look for those kind of trades. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if those names come, up, come under pressure again sometime over the next two weeks, month, or whatever. These, call, these puts, rather, are all the way out to April, just so you know. So there's plenty of time for these to run. Hey, I got another move that you made. I'm going to hold it for the other side of the break, Pete, because yeah. I do have to take one of those. Uh, a call by that you made I find pretty interesting. I think our viewers will as well. We'll take that break up next. Trades on some of the biggest analyst calls of the day. We're talking housing, defense, and again, I'll reveal Pete's latest move there, too. Halftime's back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. 
Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Russia and Ukraine have completed the first round of peace talks on the border of Belarus as Russia steps up its assault on Ukraine. Now, while there's no indication that an agreement was reached today, both sides are indicating that further talks could happen soon. Former Yankee infielder Derek Jeter is stepping down as the Miami Marlins CEO and selling his stake in the team. Jeter took on the role in 2017 after his group won the rights to buy the team in a $1.2 billion deal. Marlins principal owner Bruce Sherman says that the team is working to find a new CEO. And Amazon, the second largest U.S. employer behind Walmart, will make mask wearing optional for its warehouse employees starting tomorrow. That's unless wearing a mask is mandated by state or local law. Similar to Walmart, this comes as COVID-19 cases continue to drop and other companies like Target and Tyson loosen their mask policies. More than 70 percent of Americans now live in areas where wearing a mask is optional. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, appreciate it. Rahel Solomon. Joe? Man, Jeter needs to be in pinstripes in some capacity, don't you think? I mean, that whole thing was messed up from the oh. beginning. <laughs> yeah, get him back in the Bronx. We need Derek up here. For real. For sure. I mean, come on. All right. I, I go to you, Joe, uh, f- on purpose because you bought Lululemon. That's interesting. Tell me why. It's a new position, too, right? It's a position over the last couple of years that I have traded in and out of. But, yes, I'm reestablishing the position, looked over the portfolio. Portfolio was a little bit low right now, my personal holdings on the growth side. But I wanted growth at a somewhat reasonable price. Uh, You've got Lululemon now from an evaluation perspective trading at 40 times earnings. They still have the brand momentum. They're going to be introducing footwear. And I also think that the in-store traffic will certainly benefit as we're getting to, thankfully, a much better environment. Remember, Omicron challenged their uh, previous month's activity. All right. Now, Pete, uh, I teased your move here. You bought CrowdStrike calls. Why so? Yes. Well, I still wouldn't buy the stock, Scott, but at, at a 200 P.E., we talk about this all the time, right? Extremely high P.E., but I'll trade the options in those because, you know, you can absolutely get burned with the stock. So the stock's been between 150 and 300 bucks. Stock was trading 187 this morning, and they bought this week's expiring 200 calls in there. It seemed like a, a, a nice, cheap shot to me to own this uh, for the next couple of days. And uh, they were going for $2 up to $3. They've already traded up to $5 today. Stock started moving to the upside. I think this week, obviously, a lot of focus will be on these security-type names and obviously CrowdStrike being in that category. I think for a trade, I like this for this week. Would I buy the stock right now? Probably not. 
Yeah, I didn't think you would. I mean, it would be certainly against most of the, the things that you've said over the last many months right. about the way you view <laughs> these kinds of stocks and, and the valuations in, in which right. they trade. Which brings me to Brenda. Um, you bought the iShares Core S&P U.S. Value ETF that is called the IUSV. Um, blue chip holdings, really, right? The opposite of some of those high, high or you know, extraordinarily high valuation stocks. Berkshire, J&J, P&G, Exxon, Disney, Chevron, United Health, Coca-Cola. Those are among the top holdings. <laughs> Yes, Scott. So we added to that position. It was an existing holding for us, but we added some exposure, additional exposure over the last couple of weeks. We funded it by trimming our exposure in small cap growth and also trimming our exposure to bonds. So it was an incremental addition to equity for us. When we look out over the intermediate term, we think that's where most of the opportunity lies, is more on the value side with those high quality blue chip stocks uh, that are more attractively valued. Now, you might ask, why are we selling small cap growth? It's been under so much pressure. Uh, but when we look out um, at that universe in particular, you know, it has changed pretty significantly over the last couple of years, where there have been a lot of really early stage companies that have gone public, which is interesting in and of itself, but also means there's a lot of a, lot, a little bit more risk to that asset class. Um, and it's an asset class that can be hard to value anyway, because many of the companies in there are fast growing and might be marginally profitable or unprofitable. So when we look at where the valuation floor might be for that asset class, it's really hard to determine at this point. Um, so we, de we decided that in order to manage risk um, and, and, and take advantage of an opportunity, that we would scale back some of that exposure in favor of IUSV. Oh, okay. So, so let's pivot, if if we could, to talk about. And this is our call calls of the day. We we have a few that I, I think are important enough to, to discuss with with all of you and our our viewers. Let's talk home builders. Obviously, we've been focused very heavily on the movement in interest rates, and the stocks in many of the builders have been down of late. Whether it's, you know, in the last couple of weeks, three months, six months, in anticipation of higher moving interest rates, and the fact of how wondering how much stronger the housing market could be in terms of it, its growth moving forward. Well, Bank of America today has double upgraded. That means they've gone from underperform to buy in this case. Pulte Group and Toll Brothers, they raised Toll Brothers price target to 63 from 61. Pulte target remains 58. Pete, you own DR Horton. You think home builder shares mm -hmm. are way undervalued. How so in a world of higher interest rates? Well, I think uh, just based on how, how hard they, they really haven't really performed, right, Scott? I mean, and, and when you look at it, the demand is there. They do have supply issues. They have supply constraints as they build. And obviously, they, they need to continue to acquire. But I still think going forward that these, these, this is an area that will still see the movement to the upside across the board, especially at the lower and the starter end of, of the building. So I think based upon that, I think these are, are way too cheap right now. And obviously, this upgrade today is sort of addressing the same thing. Even with interest, interest rates going up, I don't know that we're going to slow down as much as maybe is being looked upon right now. I know it will slow it some, but I think the demand is still out there for folks that do want to get those single-family homes and move out into the suburbs and other places, Scott. Now, the other stock I want to look at, and maybe it's a group of stocks, we can throw, uh, throw up Lockheed Martin, please, and some of the other defense stocks, because there was a call on that one, too, not surprisingly, given the, the conflict that we're all witnessing um, over in, in Ukraine. 
There's Lockheed shares, okay, up four and a third percent today, upgraded by Wolf to outperform. Price target goes to 467. Pete, I know you own Lockheed. Jim, you own Raytheon. And I'll ask you your opinion first, Jim, in terms of is now the time to be upgrading these stocks? They've they've had a nice move uh, for obvious reasons. The question is, for somebody who thinks that all of this could be over in a couple of weeks, those were your words at the top of our program, why should I put new money to work in these stocks if some of that move has already happened and you think the worst of the conflict could be behind us in a couple of weeks? Yeah, so you got to take the longer picture here, which is that, you know, for about a year, year and a half, these stocks have underperformed. And it's been on the premise that with Democrats in charge, defense spending would be slashed. That hasn't turned out to be the case. And more to the point with the events that we're seeing, uh, not only in the U.S., but particularly in Europe, you're likely to see many years of increased defense spending. That's likely to be a semi-permanent change coming out of a short-term conflict. Now, I will say this, Scott, and this is important. With the moves these stocks are moving today, I wouldn't rush out and buy Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Technologies and Northrop Grumman today. I'd let things settle down for a couple of days, maybe even for a couple of weeks. But over the long term, these stocks are going to regain the mojo of outperformance that they had in the last decade because defense spending just looks like it's going to go up across the world. Okay, I'm glad you tempered your comments a bit with maybe not today or for the next couple of weeks. Obviously realizing, as I pointed out as well, the the move that we've already seen in those stocks. Joe, you own Northrop Grumman. Why is that the pick of, of yours over perhaps some of these other names like Lockheed, which gets the call today, or Raytheon, which Jim owns and likes? So I think all three of these names you could own, and I think all three of these names you could buy today. So I disagree with my good friend Jimmy. I don't think we talk about sentiment enough. Just think about sentiment last Thursday. I think the expression is oversold markets don't crash. In terms of institutional allocation to what Jim's talking about, the defense industry equity names over the last year, they were carried at a significant underweight very slowly that underweight is being rebuilt towards market weight at best. We're not even at the point here from a sentiment and ownership perspective where you could begin to think about these names as an overweight. I mean, Scott, just think about it. How many times have we talked about defense stocks in the last six to nine months on the show? I've been long Northrop Grumman. I've given it as my final uh, trade multiple times. But it's not something uh, where we're going to talk about on a daily basis like we are the ARK stocks or Apple or Microsoft. There's a lot more to go here in these stocks, and it's based on positioning and sentiment. Okay, so, Pete, you settle it then. I mean, you're the man who owns Lockheed. Joe says you can buy these today. Jim says I wouldn't buy them today, even though I like the space. Let things settle out a bit. What do you say? I think you could pause, but I actually agree with Joe. I think you buy them. Take a look at what the P.E. is of Northrop Grumman. Take a look at what the P.E. is presently and the balance sheet of what we see out of like Lockheed Martin right now, Scott. And I think you're going to see demand continue. This is the trigger point for demand. That's why I think Wolf is seeing this as an as an opportunity. And they're looking at a stock even before today. The stock was doing just fine. Now it obviously hit new highs. But I think there are plenty of highs left for a name like this. Aeronautics is going to be an area that people are going to be coming after. And Jimmy knows about the F-35 and the 16 and all those kind of things. So he's he's well aware of all of this. And he knows as well. But I think the demand is there. And it's not just about today, though, Jim. It's not just about Ukraine. It's the people who are stepping back saying, you know what? 
are we really in a position right now where we can be defensive or be aggressive if we want to be? The international side is what they're pointing out in this uh, upgrade, and I think that's very important. The international demand is going to be there. All right. Can I make one last comment? We're going to take a quick just, break. When we just nineteen, just be okay. real quick. Just be real quick, Jim. Please. In 1990, I bought Raytheon Technologies. 1990, when the Gulf War One started, because the Patriot missiles started flying. When everybody saw that, it was already in the stock. So, you know, that's a memory that sticks with me, and it's why I say, don't buy today, but wait a week or two. You got to get into these stocks. All right, I got you. Uh, we have a timely interview coming up next. The man behind the largest ETF with Russia, the RSX. It's on pace for its worst day ever for obvious reasons, given the sanctions and the severe ones that we've seen over the last many days. Stay with us. We're back on the half right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The Russian stock market is closed for trading. The NYSE and the NASDAQ have announced they're halting trading in several Russian-based stocks that list on their respective exchanges. But U.S.-based Russian exchange-traded funds, they're trading here in the United States. How is that even possible? Let's talk to Jan Van Eck. He's the CEO of Van Eck, who runs the Van Eck Russia ETF. Jan, good to see you as always. Uh, your RSX down 26% this morning. Can you explain to us how traders are estimating the value of these ETFs when the underlying stocks are not trading in their own country? Well, I just want to remind investors that ETFs trade all the time, um, you know, when the underlying is not traded. Obviously, all Asian ETFs trade, uh, you know, when the Asian markets are closed and Russia on a normal day closes at 9 a.m. So RSX is almost always trading, you know, based on, you know, quote unquote stale prices or what investors in New York think are, are good prices, Bob. You know, the amazing thing is this has happened before. Greece was closed for six weeks in 2015. And then we saw the ETFs underlying continue to trade. And when the Greek market reopened, 
it traded at the same price as the ETF was trading at. So you can have these stocks closed in their home country and still trade very well. I want to ask you about oil. A lot of crazy trading in oil stocks. Vanek Oil Services ETF, the OIH, it's near a new high today. Uh, Schlumberger, Halliburton, they're all up 30 percent or more this year. Uh, how much more can these stocks move up, given that a lot of the producers, the Occidentals, for example, they've not announced any big production increases. Can you really I'm keep su- oil above $100 and, and move these stocks any further? They seem to be hesitating now. I'm a Super Bowl on commodities, Bob. I've, I've been saying this since uh, you know fall of last year. You're just coming out of a 10-year bear market in commodities. These companies have been, you know, constricting their capital expenditure. It's an unbelievably good setup uh, for for a multi-year bull market. And, you know, commodity stocks were so unloved at the end of last year that they're almost the anti-ESG stocks. Uh, so you've got valuation support. You can still get four or five percent yield, uh, dividend yield on some of these stocks. Uh, and uh, listen, it takes a long time to increase production of, of a lot of energy stocks and green metals, uh, green metals. So I think there's there's a ways to go in this trend. All right. We're going to have a lot more coming up on the wild trading in the Russian stocks. Explain how that works. Gold stocks, energy ETFs, all on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Jan will be joined by Matt Bartolini. He's the head of Spiders America's research at State Street. He runs the GLD, the gold ETF, as well as Todd Rosenbluth from CFRA Research. ETFedge.cnbc.com at 1 p.m. halftime. Back right after this. Let's do unusual, Pete. What do you have? All right, we're going to start off with Tesla, Scott. A couple of weeks ago, a 29,000 lot was bought. Again, today, 29,000 of the March 4th expiring 900 calls bought again. Same traders out there. Stock was trading about 846. They paid about $3.50, up to about $8 for these calls. Short time frame, but this is a stock that looks like it can make a move like that very, very quickly. Second one is AMD. Same thing, March 4th expiration. That's Friday. So, watching this one, we're also seeing 16,000 of the March 4th expiring 128 calls here. 77 cents up to a dollar is what they're paying there. I'm in both these trades. The Tesla trade's already working. Now I just have to decide if I take it off now or wait to the end of the week. All right. You give us an update when you uh, make that decision, Pete. Thank you. That's Pete Najarian with Unusual Final Trades after this break. All right. Let's do Final Trades, guys. Brenda, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Uh, booking holdings. You know, the stock is corrected here. We think this represents a, a great opportunity to gain exposure to what we think is going to be a really strong global trend towards travel and leisure spending this year. Okay. Shannon? For those of you looking to add to utilities as a defensive place to hide, uh, NextEra Energy, they're actually really well positioned not only in Florida from a utility perspective, but they have a very strong and growing renewable business. You can hold this one for the longer term time period as well. All right. Joey T. A little bit of a post earnings pullback in Deer, which I own. It's the Tesla of farming autonomous tractors. Farmer Jim's going to buy one. Wow, the Tesla farming. Okay, Farmer Jim, go ahead. <laughs> uh, Paramount. I'm, I'm proving that teeth can grow in after you get yours kicked in. Uh, the bid here is real. <laughs> right. Okay, Pete, quick to you. <laughs> I think Bank of America is going to outdo all the rest of the banks going forward. Bank of America, call buying today. 
All right, does it for us. Great to be back with you and all of you, of course. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.